0: Tonight on Farage, we ask, is Rishi Sunak right when he says people, particularly young people, should go back to work because that's where they make contacts that last them for the rest of their lives? We look at Afghanistan, 20 years of huge cost financially and in terms of life. Was it all worth it? And joining me on Talking Pints, veteran Conservative Member of Parliament, David Davis. Well, increasingly over the last few weeks, we see Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who appears to have his own sort of huge spin operation, putting out messages uh, urging us to change perhaps government policy, whether it be on travel. Um, And now it's go back to work. Now, remember this time last year the government said go back to work, but of course we had another wave and that was all dropped. But what Rishi Sunak said today I thought was really interesting. It was young people especially need to get back to the office, need to get back to the workplace, need to work as part of teams. And by doing that, they will form friendships and associations that will last them right throughout their working and perhaps personal lives too. And I guess what he was really saying was, in life, it's not what you know, it's who you know, which I have to say in many walks of life, I found to be true. So I find myself broadly sympathetic with what the Chancellor is saying, but I get the feeling that quite a lot of the corporate world is still being very, very cautious about this. Well, joining me to discuss this is Dr Roger Barker, Director of Policy at the Institute of Directors. Roger, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. It made perfect sense to me what Rishi said. You know, I I can think when I was first working in in the commodity business of of people that I've met again through my business life and political life um, and and really valuable friendships that I've made. And, And somehow, to me on a Zoom call, you know, not only can you not quite form that rapport, but you also don't get the social side that, that, that does go with business. But I get the feeling amongst your members, and you are pretty representative, you know, of British business,
1: I get the feeling there's a fair bit of caution there, isn't there? Well, yes. I mean, I also sympathise, Nigel. I think, you know, thinking about my own career, it was incredibly important to have those mentors, to have yeah. that personal interaction. But I think it's important that government leaves it to business to decide how to get back into the office. You know, each business will be different. They will have different people, in different circumstances, different types of work. And it's fine, I suppose, for the Chancellor to opine on this type of issue. But for the government to be saying, you know, you've got to get these people back into work. It worked for me, so therefore it's going to work for you and you have to do it. There I think we have to be a All bit, right. bit so, careful.
0: So you don't, you don't want to be dictated to, and I understand no. that, but I repeat the point that a lot of your members are being very cautious. Indeed, I'm seeing you know, surveys of your own members yes. saying they're going to encourage working at home for a certain percentage. Perhaps people will come to the office three or four days a week. You'll cut back on office space. I mean, is this the, is this the new normal?
1: I think it is for the time being, and I think we shouldn't underestimate how radical a change this is. I mean, we're actually saying we're going to a completely new mode of work, this hybrid way of working, which we've never had before. You know, it's unprecedented. We wouldn't have thought of it happening before the pandemic. And we've now got to try and make that work. And it does, I think, for many businesses, it does appear to be an attractive solution. You're getting the best of both worlds. You're easing people back into the workplace. You're recognising, though, that you know, it needs to be done gradually. There is the benefit to many, many types of worker to actually working at home in terms of their productivity and efficiency. I,
0: I just don't believe that. I, I'm sorry, I keep hearing this about productivity. Now, it may well be, if you're a computer programmer, mm. you know, having the silence of home rather than being in a busy office I mean, perhaps in that circumstance, but for most of us, working from home is an endless series of distractions, whether it's the dog or the kids or whatever else it may be.
1: I just think it depends on the circumstances and the job. You know, it's very difficult to generalise about this. And also I think that the benefits and the cost-benefit analysis is quite complex when it comes to working at home. I mean, certainly in terms of being able to communicate with people around the world, to have more meetings, to actually work for significant periods of time, that's actually possible when you're working at home. Um, Yes, you're losing out on you know the culture of creating the yeah. culture, the camaraderie, mm. the mentorship. So I think it's quite complex, actually, the sort of pros and cons of working at home versus being in the office.
0: Well, I have to say that. I mean, I'll give you one thing on that point. You know, I've done so many Zoom calls with other parts of the world, meetings that would not have taken place before the pandemic unless I'd flown there. So I can yes. see there are some advantages. Yes, but but the specific point that Rishi was making was about young people forming those relationships that last through their life. Your members. Um, in the referendum, you know, were mixed on this as the yes. country was. Or there was a majority for Brexit, but there were strong opinions on both sides. And in some ways, the impact of Brexit, be it good or bad, has been somewhat masked by all that's happened during the pandemic. How do you feel now about the state of British business looking ahead? Well, you
1: know, our members are pretty optimistic now at this this point in time. I mean, it does vary by sector. I mean, mm. if you're looking okay. at the hospitality sector, travel and leisure, you know, the people who have been affected by the pandemic mm. and by the continued restrictions, mm. you know, they are still having a very tough time. But on the whole, business is, is, is looking, is thinking that it's pretty optimistic. So that is really positive. Um, there's a lot of sort of pent up demand, I think, in the economy. Um, what does worry me slightly is that you know, larger companies seem to be really steaming ahead very well. SMEs face a more difficult situation. They're, they're, they're burdened uh, with debt and you know, all this state government-backed debt which they've had to take on to keep going. And I, I, I do worry about their ability to sustain the recovery.
0: Yeah, it's been a great pandemic for you know, Amazon uh, yes. and for the big guys and not yes. so good for the local retailer. And finally, furlough is, I think, this time really beginning to come to an end. We've heard yes. it before. How many of those 1.9 million people that are still on furlough, how many of them do you think are going to finish up being unemployed?
1: I think that that some of them may do, but you could also argue that those who are going to be made unemployed probably would have been made unemployed by now. You know, that the employer already has to pay now 20% actually of the costs of furlough. So they probably would have made that decision. But I do think, you know, furlough has been a, a, an amazing thing throughout this pandemic. And it, to be honest, it's the single policy measure that, that really has done, done the most to save British business. Mm. But, you know, it, it's, it is a temporary thing and it's, it's right now that it's coming to an end. It's yeah. very expensive. And it, we probably now need to allow those people on furlough to come out into the labour market and start to move towards the new jobs, the jobs of the future. Yeah.
0: But overall, I love the optimism. Well, that was very interesting indeed. And, you know, Roger Barker there saying, look, government, don't dictate to us, but making it clear that there is a kind of a new normal coming where a lot of companies will have people working less together in offices and more at home. Well, let's now speak to Xavier Rowley, the former CEO of the London Stock Exchange. And as a young man, he was a banker with Goldman Sachs, who used to work up to 130 hours a week. And he's caused a bit of controversy in the last few days by saying that young bankers in London who are complaining about 95-hour weeks and £90,000 salaries shouldn't complain. Xavier, good evening, and thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, thanks for having me on your show.
0: I know, I know you're in a log cabin somewhere without the best internet connection. Um, your comments about people working long hours and, and young people uh, in particular, uh, you know, who were ambitious, not complaining, um, has caused something of a stir. But let me ask you this. Those young people, I presume you're talking about those young people working together as part of teams rather than working from, you know, their, their apartments or houses. Uh, When Sunak says that young people should get back to work, should be able to spend time working and engaging with each other because they're relationships that will last throughout their business lives, do you think he's broadly right?
2: Yes, I think so, particularly for young people. Psychologically, some of them have only known a sort of COVID-type environment for the last two years or so. And it's important that we break that isolation. We can't just be doing business facing screens. We're not going to revert back to where we were. The world has changed. We're now facing a hybrid working environment. But for your younger generations in particular, understanding that human connections, uh, whether you're exporting your goods, whether you're innovating, working with other entrepreneurs, bringing new things to the market, using technology. You can't just do that in isolation. So breaking that psychological pattern that has established itself in the last, let's say, 18 months, I think it's particularly important for the hope for the future, for young folks. And I I would say, in addition, the UK has done very well in terms of its vaccination program. So it's not like we're going back into work from a position of weakness. There clearly is an issue with the variants and that calls for probably a better global governance for the distribution of vaccines. That's obviously another subject altogether. But there is a a commercial uh, economic edge that we should leverage as quickly as we can. And I do think it's particularly important for the younger generation.
0: Yeah, I must say, I've worried too that we squandered something of the advantage that we had through this very, very effective and relatively quick vaccine rollout. But can I just ask you a last question? You know, given your comments on the hours that young, ambitious people should be prepared to work, I mean, are you a sort of Victorian slave driver to work for?
2: (laughs) I, I think ultimately it's a personal choice. And I was just... Relating something that I'm, I'm sure you relate to, Nigel, uh, working in global markets. Things have changed now, there's technologies. But 40 years ago, when you were trading Asia, Europe, America in the same day, you carried your book with you in your head all the time. This is just pointing in one direction. If you want something, if you're ambitious, particularly if you're coming from a humble background, and you've put yourself through school, Perhaps with the help of your hard-working parents, at the beginning you have to invest. You have to work very hard. There's no substitute for putting in that effort. Nope. This was the point I wanted to make. How far is each person willing to go? Is a matter of expression of freedom. It's a personal choice. Yes, there's but a balance. I would, I would. add one additional point. Well, Zabie, I have to work, say, I have uh, to say, for example, actually, a recently retired.
0: Actually, Xavier, I have to say, on balance, I think you're right. I don't know anybody who's been really successful in life who hasn't worked very, very hard at whatever their chosen business was. And thank you so much for joining us. Well, fairly broad agreement there that actually, on balance, Rishi is right, but that we're living in a new normal. Now, Afghanistan, we've been there for 20 years. Everyone's pulling out, us, the Americans. And in all that time there, there have been 457 British lives lost. Uh, For the Americans, 2,312 soldiers killed. And there's a financial cost, at least £22 billion from the UK and from the US, well, it's £824 billion. So we've spent a trillion pounds. We have lost a lot of lives, let alone the many thousands that have been severely wounded. And now we're leaving, and the Taliban are on the march. They're advancing. Uh, And it looks as if we've achieved pretty much nothing over the course of the last 20 years, which would suggest to me that it's been a disastrous foreign policy failure. Well, joining me now to talk about this, and hopefully uh, to dispel some of my pessimism, is Admiral Lord West and Shabnam Nazami, director of the Conservative Friends of Afghanistan. Um, If I can begin uh, with you, Lord West, uh, as a military man, uh, we're pulling out and, okay, it was a slightly different extremist force we were fighting 20 years ago, but basically we've achieved nothing.
3: Um, I I don't think that's true. I I think one has to go back to when we first went into Afghanistan. Um, I was commander-in-chief at that time. I remember speaking to the Marines before they first went into action on the ground there. it was quite clear that uh, the Taliban were uh, chumming up with Al-Qaeda. And indeed, at that stage, the local Al-Qaeda leader, in fact, the Fatah and, uh, 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 and the Taliban leader were, were great mates. Um, we went in there and within a matter of about nine weeks, uh, certainly in three months, we had completely knocked uh, Al-Qaeda for six. We were shocked by the number of training camps there were to train terrorists. We were shocked by the fact there were laboratories to try and develop things like anthrax, but they were all destroyed, and we'd driven the remnants of al-Qaeda into the Fatah. So that was a huge achievement. I think our error then, I believe, that actually what we should have done was try and let the Afghan people cobble together some sort of political agreement, which I'm afraid probably would have been a mess, and we should have left, and we should have said, we're leaving this to you, but if you ever again let... Terrorists train in your land and come to attack us, we will come back, we will knock them for six, give them a huge punch, and we'll move out again. And so it will go on. And that's what I think we should have said. Instead, we hung on, we invaded um, Iraq, which I have to say was a questionable thing to do. Um, that didn't go brilliantly. And we then sort of fo- refocused on Afghanistan. It suited some people in our military to be doing that. I can remember two generals saying, well, if we if we don't use them, we'll lose them. Talking about soldiers, that's not a good basis to have operations. Um, and we said we'd go into the Helmand. I was absolutely adamantly opposed to that as a chief of staff. Uh, I had a background in intelligence. We knew nothing about Helmand at all. And I said, this is a terrible error. What are we actually doing?
0: But we've done it. We've done it. We've done it, Lord West. We've done it. I mean, however muddled the strategy was in the early days, and certainly the the war aims as expressed to us by the then Labour government and then Conservative government seem to change over the years. But pulling out now after 20 years, there are some military voices that are saying, well, actually, we shouldn't be going now. We should be staying, given the threat the Taliban poses. Is it right? And I accept your point that we went in with a purpose. We achieved much of it, but we did stay on. Is it wrong for us to be leaving now in your opinion?
3: No, I think we should I think we should go. It's very unfortunate, I'm afraid. But yep. we must make absolutely clear to the Taliban what I said before. If they allow Al Qaeda and other terrorists to get yep. established and start training camps and things, we must go back with special forces and air attacks and absolutely clobber them and the Americans will be on side for that as well without a doubt and other allies and we need to make that absolutely clear so that it is not in the interests of the Taliban to allow that to happen. But I think it is absolutely right that we go we can't hang on there forever. I mean, it's no. just a nonsense
0: to do that. No 20 years is a very very long, very, very long time. But Shabnam uh, I mean how are you feeling uh, for your fellow countrymen in Afghanistan at the moment? They must be pretty scared with what they're facing.
4: Thank you, Nigel. Well, look, the situation is very serious. And as we speak just now, there are reports of Taliban suicide bomb attacks taking place in Kabul and fighting continues. The next few weeks will be pivotal for the future of Afghanistan and uh, ominous implications for its people who are facing a looming humanitarian disaster, but also for the power and the influence of the West and specifically Britain. Um, The Taliban have advanced faster than many of us expected, seizing territory, key border crossings and threatening now provincial capitals. Uh, And the immediate fear is a humanitarian disaster. But I think it's really important to understand what it is that we're trying to protect. It's a common misconception, in my opinion, reinforced by the international media, that democracy and human rights were imposed on Afghanistan after the U.S.-led intervention uh, ousted the Taliban in 2001 an entire generation has been brought up on western liberal democratic values and against the Taliban in a country that's made up of almost 70% under 25 year olds today they're a prime target for the Taliban who are going after politicians intellectuals and anyone else regarded as having a liberal westernized identity we n- we've now had 20 years without Taliban influence 20 years allowing afghan uh, people to taste elections yep. uh, women and girls to get into education 20 years to build businesses, reopen markets, listen to music, play sports. If the Taliban prevails and is able to wind the clock back to to 2001, those sacrifices will have been in vain. And I I think so often we underestimate and undervalue what Britain has been able to achieve both on the ground and in the the protection of ourselves.
0: That's that's a very positive uh, point and one that I want to hear. So are you arguing that it's wrong for the British and the Americans to be leaving at this moment in time?
4: I am I think to abandon the people of Afghanistan now um, who are protecting western values I think that's important to understand they weren't they weren't just standing up for democracy and human rights for themselves they were doing it for the US for Britain for Europe for the region And I think personally, it's quite unclear as to why NATO couldn't maintain 3,500 troops to prevent Taliban sieges, whilst up to 2,500 US troops are remaining in Iraq in a uh, non-combat role to help Iraqi security forces keep an eye on insurgent and terrorist um, groups.
0: I think in the end, it's about political will. And I I think that the the mood in America has changed very, very quickly. Finally, Lord West, can I just ask you, um, it does seem astonishing to me, Uh, Even though I believe in controlled borders, but it seems astonishing to me that we have effectively, I think, betrayed many of these Afghans who worked as interpreters. Uh, Can you put some more pressure on the government, please? Because surely these people deserve refuge in our country after the service they've given.
3: They absolutely do. Uh, I wish I had as much influence with the government as you seem to think that I do have. But I've been banging on about this actually since... uh, about 2013, December that year in Hansal, I started uh, and it's become more urgent because of the situation in Afghanistan. We absolutely owe them something. We owe them to the moral sense, but also actually in self-interest, because I'm afraid around the world our forces will be fighting again. That, yeah. that is the reality of the world. And it is. Uh, people won't help us if they don't think we'll ever help them. But on the no. point of, of Afghanistan, I'm delighted the good things that have happened. But I don't think that means we should stay there. I mean, I think this could just go on and on and on. And there are many countries in the world, I'm afraid, that are in a mess. And we can't afford to be in all of them, helping to sort them out.
0: No, that, both of you, thank you for giving us two very, very clear different opinions, whether we should be staying, whether we should be leaving. I have to say for my part, I think what with that and with Iraq and with Libya, Uh, We've made some pretty bad decisions over the course of the last 20 years. In a moment, should we celebrate the fact that the government has U-turned and there will not be an amber watch list? I'm sure you now understand what the travel traffic light rules are. Because, gosh, isn't it just all so simple? Now, as ever, with all the issues we discuss, the opinions that I give or our guests give, we welcome your opinions to gbviews at gbnews.uk. And, of course, you can also send in your Barrage the Farage comments and questions, which I go through, having not seen them, at the end of the show. Reaction so far to the debate? Jan on email says, why would the kids want to do manual jobs and work as key workers when they can train to work in an office and work from home, saving them thousands? thousands every year in transport costs. There is a point there Jan that it has in many ways been a lot of people in middle class jobs that have been able to stay at home and it's been much much tougher for others. Keith on Twitter says working from home could be done from anywhere. If the office workers aren't careful, their jobs will end up offshore. HR is cheaper abroad. Yeah, well, things could get outsourced, I suppose. And Claire on email says, I met my best friend almost 50 years ago as trainees in the civil service, also another friend almost as long ago. We caught up three weeks ago when she visited the UK. Friendships made at work can last. And on productivity, well, I'm very sceptical. Steve on email says to me, that somehow, if productivity has been so good, why do I spend hours waiting on the phone to do anything? And I agree with that completely. Richie, on email, says, I get how people love the cocoon of being at home, but nothing beats the camaraderie of being in the workplace. Well, I've got to tell you, I agree with that. And it isn't just the camaraderie in the office. There is a social dimension, isn't there, to going, travelling to an office and meeting people and perhaps socialising on a Thursday evening or whatever else it may be. I sort of get the feeling um, that last year, for so many people, being at home, uh, sitting in the garden, uh, you know, the weather was beautiful, uh, having a barbecue for lunch, and kind of people thought, well, this is much better than being in the office. But in the end, in the end, humans form their best ideas when they're together, physically bouncing ideas off each other. Now, last night, we were, I think to some extent, railing the travel plans uh, and in particular Boris Johnson saying he wanted to make the whole thing much simpler. So overnight we've learned uh, that at least one of the bans has disappeared Um, and to go through this and to see whether it is actually any simpler today than it was yesterday, I'm joined by uh, by Noel Josephides Director of Ayuto, the Specialist Travel Association and Chairman of Tour Operator Sunville. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening. So, Noel, as I understand it, uh, we still have red and we still have amber and we still have green, but we still have amber plus for France. Is that just about where we are at the moment?
5: It is. What happened last night was really very much a red herring. Uh, This um, uh, amber watch list came to us very suddenly and disappeared just as suddenly again. Um, And it hasn't really done any favour. It's been built as such. But no, nothing nothing has changed. We still have uh, the amber uh, with France in amber plus, the red and the green. And we're hoping that on Thursday we will have some good news. Um, And we're looking forward to it because we're barely trading. I mean, wouldn't it be
0: simpler just to have red and green? Wouldn't that explain to us exactly uh, what government thought about these countries and perhaps give people confidence? I mean, I wonder, you know, OK, we've got an announcement coming on Thursday, but I would guess at the moment bookings to Spain and countries like that, they can't be very good.
5: No, there is is no confidence. If the government really wants to help us, uh, as you say, they should do away with the amber. And then what they should do is say, um, we've got, we're told the best vaccination system in the world, we're way ahead of everybody else. Uh, At the moment, we're not making use of it. But if they really want to help this industry, which is worth 37 billion uh, to uh, to the economy, they should say from now until the end of October, there will be no changes. And we guarantee that when you come back uh, into the UK, you will not have to self-isolate. That one fact will make an enormous difference to our ability to get through the year.
0: Would people believe those guarantees? Because we've been made lots of guarantees during this pandemic uh, that have turned out not to be true.
5: Absolutely. So let's hope they've learned from all the previous guarantees they've given, which have never worked.
0: And can we finally please have a prediction from you? What do you think is going to happen on Thursday?
5: I think they've been under a lot of pressure. I think we will see more countries in green. Unfortunately, I don't think uh, we will uh, see any difference to the amber, although hopefully France will come out of amber plus, uh, because that's been grossly unfair. Hmm. And... Uh, Hopefully, uh, the government will begin to temper um, what it's saying, uh, accept that the UK is falling behind, and that if they want this industry to survive, they must begin to create some sort of confidence amongst the travelling public.
0: Well, we'll see what happens. Noel, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. And I have to say there must be just millions of people out there desperately confused uh, and worried if they're going to book foreign holidays. And there even reports yesterday that at Heathrow Airport there were queues, passport queues, of a quarter of a mile long. Uh, and that was because some of the new technology, you know, the new system wasn't working properly. And, of course, there are staff uh, that have been pinged, uh, that are often and isolating. And, as we learnt last week, some border force from Heathrow and Gatwick have been sent down to Dover. I wonder why. Well, my what the farage tonight concerns the border force. It really does. And what's been going on in Dover. So today... Once again, the migrant boats are coming across the channel. This is footage taken in Dover Harbour this morning. There's Hurricane, a Border Force boat, as you can see, full of people now wearing the orange life vests. And towed behind it, one of those new boats, that they're they're, they're built just for one trip. They're 36 feet long. They can take 70-plus people. I I think the record so far, one of them had 83 people in it. So, once again, today in Dover, it's been a busy day. We don't yet have the official Home Office figure, but, you know, it'll be in the hundreds again, and it'll be in the hundreds again tomorrow, and it is an absolutely catastrophic failure of policy. A failure not just from the Home Office, but from a border force who repeatedly tell us They are going to get this under control. Now, I was a great believer in life, and I'm sure uh, Monsieur Rowley, the former boss of the Stock Exchange, would heartily endorse this. I've always been a great believer that people should get paid according to performance. If they do well, you pay them more. You certainly don't pay them more if they fail at what they're there to do. And yet, we learn. I learned, and thank you, thank you to the sharp-eyed viewer who sent this in to me, and I have to say, I get so many things sent in to me by you, the people that I'm able to use on this show, because I can't possibly be across everything. So this was sent in. Amazing. The Director General for Policy and Strategy in the Border, Immigration and Citizenship System in the Home Office has seen his pay, ri- pay ban rise by £10,000 putting him in the 140 to 145,000 bracket. The head of immigration enforcement has seen his pay ban rise up to 125 to 130,000. And the head of border force has seen his pay ban rise by £5,000. So 10,000 for the other two, 5,000 for the boss, and they've completely and utterly failed in doing what they said they would do and helping with Priti Patel to stop the migrant crisis. And I have to say, that drives me mad, because people should be paid on results. It doesn't appear in the Home Office and Border Force that that works anymore. And there'll be more over the next few days on the border crisis. Oh, and there'll be more on the RNLI, who many now think uh, that I attacked last week here on this programme. And I didn't attack the crews and the amazing work they do. I did question why Border Force is now effectively using the RNLI as a branch. And indeed today, the Dover lifeboat was out picking up people. The RNLI should not routinely be used by border force. If there's an emergency, fine, you scramble the lifeboats. But they're being used routinely, uh, and the whole system has become little more than a taxi service for mass illegal immigration into this country. Uh, And those of you who thought you could somehow bully me online on this are wrong. I am the strongest defender of the RNLI you would ever meet. I've raised money for them, I've campaigned for them, I don't want to see them being used in this way. Uh, And I fear that the institution itself, not the volunteers, but the institution itself, with their head office in Poole. Uh, with their pay, their pay packets ever increasing, has frankly become somewhat woke and out of touch with its original aims, which, of course, is simply saving lives at sea. Now, today, in Talking Pints, I'm going to be joined by Eurosceptic and veteran Tory MP David Davis. Yes, it's Talking Pints, and last night we had Ken Livingstone telling us how awful Brexit was. Tonight, we've got somebody who came out very strongly in favour of Leave and campaigned hard for it. Somebody who's been sitting in the House of Commons since 1987. So we're going to have to uh, uh, find out what motivates you, David Davis, to have stayed in politics. (laughs) But firstly, cheers (laughs) and welcome. He's he's not drinking a pint, but that's OK. I was
6: going to say, less of the veteran, if you don't mind.
0: (laughs) How can can I describe anybody that sat in the House of Commons since 1987? Yeah. because there aren't many MPs that have been there longer than you. No,
6: but the... the, About one or two. But the... I mean, the answer to your question is there's always a battle to fight. Always a battle to fight. Whether it's Brexit or whether it's civil liberties or Mm -hmm. the rule of law or immigration or whatever it is, there's always a battle to fight. And, I mean, it was was interesting. When, when um, When I became Brexit secretary... I thought, well, somebody else will pick up all my, you know, the civil liberty stuff and the rule of law stuff. Nobody really did. No. So when I came back out... I, no, I, I'm going
0: to come to the civil I, liberty stuff. I had a full
6: brief when I came I'm, out. I'm <laughs> going
0: to come to the civil liberty yeah, stuff yeah. in a minute. But, David, you, you had a successful career yeah. in business. Yeah. You worked with Tate and Lyle. You had a very good position at a young age. You were you know, famously a territorial army soldier mm. and all the rest of it. And you went into politics. Uh, because you believed in stuff and you clearly believed in what faction was trying to do because that's the period when you joined. When you joined that House of Commons, you'd have been surrounded by people who'd, you know, had a good war. Uh, entrepreneurs, um, people who'd risen up through the ranks of the trade unions from working on shop floors, on the mines. And the point I'm making is that that parliament you joined was full of people with real experience of the real world. And you were just one of those. But now, doesn't it feel a bit odd to be in Parliament with people who, frankly, too many of them have come straight out of the same university with the same degree.
6: Well, there's quite a lot of that. I mean, when, when I, you're right, when I first joined, the two, my two predecessor MPs were the last two double decorated members of the House of Commons. They each had a military cross and DSO. Yeah? Yeah. And, and one of my tests is to say to myself, what would they think? You know, yeah. I mean, today, their hair will be curling. <laughs> <laughs>
0: On lots of issues, On lots of I'm issues,
6: sure. Lots of issues, but but it's become more careerist over the years. There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. I think also the tenures shorten shortened slightly, you know, that people are there for less time. Uh, and so I'm unusual, whereas I don't think Ooh. I would have been unusual in, in the length of time I've been in back when I, when I arrived, as it were. Um, also, bluntly, uh, the prestige of the House of Commons has gone down. You know, I mean, whether it, was, uh, whether it was expenses or before that, all the sort of John Major era of the, you know, the sleaze of one sort or another, yeah. all those things, I think, have altered the, the, the tenor of it. The other thing that's happened, bluntly, is, I mean, it's very, very visible at the moment, but the, the changes to the rules and so on, I mean, actually, the House has less influence and less power than it used to have. I mean, at the moment, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like a parish council
0: at the moment. And that's because, that's because, you know, power's been centralised more and more.
6: Yeah, yeah, I mean every every act of Parliament now that goes through is what they call programmed now there's a guillotine you know yeah. Yeah. so you know you can get three minutes but now you may be used to three minutes in speaking. the European Parliament well, that, that was good that's precisely <laughs> what you got yeah. but you know if you've got big issue to fight over mm. you know you you know you need 10 minutes at least to talk about whether we should bomb Syria you know or, or, or whether we should go into Afghanistan or you, know, yeah. you can't do that in three minutes you know and also the people who had experience you know the ex-Cabinet ministers, the, the people who had maybe served in, in the forces and so on, they get a bit longer at the beginning. Now it's much, much more sort of tick box, you know, so many minutes each. And it does rather force, and I don't blame my colleagues for this, but it does rather force them to a circumstance of, of sort of giving the local press release in their speech, rather, yeah. than, rather than making a very... Because the power
0: yeah. of debate, the power of debate, isn't it? And, and this happens in Parliament, and I'm a great believer that every pub's a Parliament. <laughs> well, no, I know I really mean it, because people come together and, and, and you listen to different points of view, yeah. and, and you say, well, do you know what? I've never thought of it like that. Yeah. I mean, the real power of parliamentary debate is you've got a chamber with lots of people in it, yeah. a conversation that's going on, and a vote that happens shortly thereafter, yeah. and that people do
6: actually change their minds. And people can challenge... Yep. People wouldn't challenge. Yes. And that's the most important thing. In and that's not really happening. You're not saying. at all. Not at all. I mean, you know, you make a speech. I mean, I, throughout all of Parliament until the last week when I was pinged. So I couldn't be there, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, uh, I've tried to be actually in the chamber mm-hmm. rather than talking through a screen because nobody can intervene on you through a screen where if you're in a chamber, somebody will challenge you. Mm. And that actually makes your speech better. You, know, if you if you've got to mm. make your speech robust to challenge, yeah. Yeah. it makes it better. Um, and and that's, that's not true at the moment. And it's much less true with the time constraints. So, you know, if you've only got three minutes, are you going to give way to anybody? No, you're not. No, you're not. You know, so, so there's been a, a really quite serious reduction. And, and the government, successive governments, I mean, Thatcher was accused of it. She wasn't really most to blame. Um, Major uh, Blair... Brown and Cameron have all centralised, Uh, and and that's continued, and that's continued.
0: David, one thing that's amazed me during the pandemic is the extent to which government have, it seems almost gleefully, centralised not just power to the centre, but almost treated our liberties as if they own it. Oh, we're told, on the 19th of July, it's Freedom Day, as if it's their freedom, they own it and they're giving it to us and we should be very, very grateful. And I kind of grew up, I think thinking the same thing as you, Mm. that this was a liberty loving nation, a nation that has stood up and fought for liberty, sacrificed much for liberty, not even just for itself, but actually for others around the world. What has happened to us, because from what I can see, every time the government puts forward actually quite bad legislation, Mm. you're just about, I may be wrong here, but it seems you're just about the only MP that
6: raises any objection. Well, I'm not the only one. All right, but how many are there? But there are, you know, you're talking half a dozen, you know. Half a dozen? Out of six. One percent? Yeah. Um, I mean, this started right at the beginning, back on March 23rd in the first... Yep. When we When we had the... We went from basically saying, we're going to try and tough this out, I think. That was really Boris's strategy. To all of a sudden, wallop. We were... Mm. We had the Covid emergency bill... Um, and what the COVID emergency bill was, it wouldn't just take powers themselves. Other bills in the past have done that. The, the infamous 1984 Health Act, 1984 is a great through to the uh, you know the uh, 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 the um, Civil Contingencies yep. Act. But all of those required the government to come back within you know, they could make the decision, but come back within five days yep. and get Parliament to approve it. They threw all that out the window. And what was interesting was the Labour Party did not resist at all. Mm. They, they thought that they got a tremendous concession by having a sort of six-month rubber, well, they called it a sunset clause. Actually, it's a rubber stamp clause, because you couldn't change anything. So basically, government comes through and says, here's all our package of proposals, yes or no. You know, and actually, it's quite a brave MP that says no to everything in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. But, you know, so, so it really altered the balance of power. And since I mean, you know, you've got about 45 members of the um, CRG. The, yeah,
0: the, yeah. I mean, that has grown a bit. That's but, grown. But, but uh, interestingly, I mean, you know, if you... It's taken a, take a long time, though, hasn't it's it? It's
6: taken time. Um, but what sort of happened, ironically, in all of this is quite a few MPs are suddenly discovering the importance of liberty You know. The battles over freedom—you will remember the, the, these. In, in, I haven't always had many allies, ever, but you know, sometimes the way the politics play, yeah. we could do something about it. But I think now a lot of people are thinking: actually, yeah, I, I, freedom includes my freedom to go to a nightclub, mm. my freedom to go on holiday, mm. you know, my freedom to to, to go to work—the <laughs> sort of very, very fundamental things. And suddenly, because freedom is a very elusive concept until it's taken away. Yeah, once you've lost
0: it, you know what it once is. Yeah. Once exactly.
6: And, and and that you know, and, and you're right. You see this country, I mean basically we own our freedom. The government doesn't. Yeah. Own and freedom. we lend it to them. That the elections that's, we lend them That's the, power. the concept. Yeah. Now we always know that governments have got sticky hands. Mm. You give them something, they don't give it back. Mm. So I mean infamously in the second world war, we had ID cards in theoretically to be able to stop would-be German spies in the street. That wasn't really a big
0: thing. No, no, it's parachutists dressed as nuns, I think. All of it? those, Whatever all all was, of those yeah.
6: fantasies. But when did, we, when did we get them back? When did we have to get when we could give up? Nineteen
0: fifty-two, I think it was thereabouts.
6: And the the reason was because juries were refusing to convict people for not carrying them. Mm. So that was another of our institutions defending freedom more than the government does. And I'm afraid all governments are the same in that respect. But
0: you you are are valiantly fighting this, and and indeed, on very similar issues, you fought a by-election back in two thousand and eight. So you've always believed in this, and it's very, very important. But David, I must, I must take you back to—you might not want to—but I must take you back to 2005, you know, you were the, I mean, the front runner to become the Tory leader, Yeah. and this fellow called Cameron, who we'd never heard of, yeah. really, um, with his sort of polished red cheeks, and he turns up, and, and, <laughs> and uh, in fact, I think I'm right in saying you were such an odds-on favourite, that one of the big bookmakers has stopped taking money on you. And somehow the outsider, this you know, younger fella, Cameron, comes through and wins. Mm. And and I guess you know you would have been prime minister, but life didn't work out that way. What went wrong, David? I mean, well, I made a it, terrible speech. Do
6: you try to raise it, or do you still think about no, it? No, 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 no. I mean, the uh, well, I made a bad speech at party conference. That's yeah. the first thing. Uh, yeah. and you know, that's my fault. Nobody else's. Yeah. All right. Um, but off the back of that, you know, the the sort of media pack decided ah, we've got, we've got possibility of change. And they, they veered towards that. And although it's generally accepted, like I won all the debates on television, the next five debates didn't matter, it was too late, it was done. It was done. You know? And that's, that's you know life's yeah. like that. So yeah. you know, things turn yeah. and you just have to live with it. Uh, you know, and uh, I, Nixon's not a great hero of modern times, but he said one thing that I agree with, and that is there's no shame in getting knocked down, it's not getting back up that's the shame. Yeah. You know? Well... And, and you
0: certainly did that <laughs> because when the referendum came, the Brexit referendum came, uh, you, know, you, were, you, you threw yourself into it completely and mm-hmm. we shared the stage on a few occasions and we together yeah. and travelled around the country and we had Labour's Kate Hoey with us and we tried to present a very broad platform, actually, of different yeah. people that wanted Brexit and you believed in it very strongly mm-hmm. and we got it. And then you found yourself in Mrs May's cabinet and there you were, you were the Brexit secretary... And it was very difficult for all of us on the outside to really read where this was going. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people had deep suspicions that it might just not be going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That we might we might be heading for Brino, Brexit. Yep, they were in well May well-founded May. founded suspicions. <laughs> and well, as it turned out, they were. Yeah. Um, I kind of think your body language during that period told us pretty much what you were really thinking. But you stayed loyal and you did what you could until... And I just want to know about this, because the great Checkers meeting, mm. you know, the Prime Minister, the Cabinet is summoned and she's going to sort of talk about the final shape of the deal with Brussels. And there were stories about you having to leave mobile phones out of the room. All of that. And even not have cars at Chequers, is that right? So all of that, all of that. And so just, I mean, as much as you can, just what
6: happened? Well, first thing to say is that she told me what her proposal was. I mean, there'd been a long tension from the December of the year before when she conceded the full alignment for Northern Ireland, which became the pivot. And, and I said to her at that time, you know, you can't do this. This is, this is contrary to everything you've said. Oh, we've got to have it done. Anyway... There's a long battle between there and the middle of the year, June, July. And June, I think it was. And um, on the Monday, she told me what she wanted to do, and I said, that won't work. And we'd had a lot of times when she said, I want to do this. And I said, well, look, as it stands, that won't work. Let me try and modify it to make it tolerable, Mm. tenable for for a Brexiteer. Um, And I tried to do that. Um, but as you can imagine, I mean, it was so so far off the wall; it, it wasn't possible. So on the Wednesday, on the, I, I made a I made a valiant attempt. But on the Wednesday, I've made my proposal. It was rejected within an hour. Right. Yeah. So on the Thursday, I briefed my team. I said I'm going to be resigning um, because we you, know, you expect checkers to be rigged, the, the vote to be predetermined, and mm-hmm. so on. And that's pretty much what happened. Four of us opposed. Uh, myself, Boris, um, and two others. I won't embarrass them. but um, uh, And... It wouldn't embarrass me. I put up a roll of honour. But anyway, yeah, go on. Right. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I haven't asked their
0: permission. Yeah, no, either. sure, sure, sure.
6: So uh, and so, I thought, well, you know, this is not the place to resign. Where they control the media, they control your, your time. So yeah. I said, oh, and on the Sunday night, I decided I'll do it on a Sunday night because then I can control the story. I mean, as you know, I mean... Every piece of the British media is on one side or other of the, the back divide, yeah. And they would make my resignation into their story. I didn't want that. I wanted mm. it to be for clear reasons and clear, uh, and uh, only the reasons I wanted to put across. And so I did that on Sunday night. Um, and Monday morning, I did an interview with John Humphreys yep. uh, on the Today programme yep. and laid it all out. And all of a sudden, the Tory Party was in two pieces. Mm. And that's what, and, and that one of the
0: reasons... No, I listen, it was
6: very important that you did resign. Yeah, yeah. If we had, Boris said to me, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm breaking too much confidence. He didn't want
0: to resign, really, did
6: he? Not really, no. But he said to me about a year or so ago, we, we, had a, we had a private conversation about a year or so ago, relatively private, he said, oh, well, he said, dear. you know, he said, if you hadn't resigned, he said, we'd still be here going through the 33rd variant of yeah, the... Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think that's... Uh, it.
0: No, you resigned... Well, I think that forced Boris into resigning, frankly. Well, then but, you have but, to ask. But,
6: get him and ask him. Yeah, he, well, I, no, 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 he, I don't think he's coming on here now. Maybe not, but, but, uh, but you know.
0: But, but you did it, and thank God you did, because... Because we're out. Because that led to, that led to the Spartans, mm. which led to the impasse, which led to the European elections, which I was able to, you know, mm-hmm. really smash the concern. Well get, well, get rid of Mrs May, basically, with the Brexit party. And, mm. and, we, and we've got it. It's not perfect. Northern Ireland's not no. perfect no. by no. far. Fisheries isn't perfect by far. Yeah,
6: there's about three years more negotiations to happen. Yeah, there's more to happen. But, hey, we're in, we're in a pretty good place. Yeah, we're, 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 we're talking from outside, which is a better way. I mean, one of the problems being yeah. inside, White, it was very, very difficult to get Whitehall off their knees. Yeah. Yeah, they, were, they, were, they were trying to negotiate as supplicants, which, of course, is of the course, way the European well, Union normally yes,
0: negotiates. and these were the terms that were agreed right at the very beginning. Yeah. We were always fighting out. The famous timing problem I, know, the problem. I know, I know. David, finally... Does David Davis just keep running for Parliament, keep being an MP and keep battling on forever?
6: For as long as the battle's there. I mean, oh,
0: look, there'll always be battles there.
6: It, it, it is, for as long as the battle's there and, there's no, and nobody else wants to do the same battle. You know, that's the yeah. point. When none of us, none of us are irreplaceable. No. And, you know, hopefully others will pick up the, the baton. They're beginning to. I think, mm. actually, you know, Covid may lead to mm. a number of young Tory MPs saying to themselves, actually, freedom matters. Well, I hope you're right. And if that does, then fine, That's I can right. retire. Thank
0: he's you for free. joining us, David. Well, that was David Davis, and I tell you what, he's not going anywhere. He's definitely standing in the next general election. You heard it here first. That's true. On TV <laughs> News. It's true. There we are. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> right, now, finally, finally, we get to... The Farage, barrage at the end, where you can fire any question you want at me. And I, of course, don't get any pre-sight of what those questions are, which is tough. But you never know. I haven't tripped up yet, maybe today. Chris on email asks, how would you motivate young people to get them back into the office? Well, I think actually Rishi's done a rather good job of that. I actually think the logical argument that it is by going back to the office, by working with people, by building relationships, that these will help you through the rest of your career, your business life and your social life. He's made a good start. I wouldn't suggest there are no financial incentives for going back to the office. In fact, the opposite, because you've got to commute to work and buy a coffee and buy a sandwich. It is much cheaper to sit at home and drink beer in the garden and pretend your productivity levels are raised. It's all nonsense. Bill on email asks, isn't it a time to fix a date for a second referendum on Scottish independence and that Parliament legislate on the terms of the referendum so that this time... Oh, look, it'll never bring it to a conclusion for a generation. We were told that Brexit was a once in a generation vote, but once they got the result, they didn't want to honour it, did they? And the Scots Nats will go on arguing for this, but I tell you what, I'm certain of one thing. When they look down the barrel of a referendum, the Scottish people are not going to vote to leave the United Kingdom with the prospect of joining a European Union, if it would have them, that would make them join the Euro. It just isn't going to happen. Charlie on email asks, what is the most important lesson you've learned from your time in politics? I better ask Davis that one, really, had not I? I said it the one I've learned, above all, the need for patience. You know, you believe in something really passionately, you absolutely want it to happen tomorrow, but life doesn't work like that. Fundamental change and reform just isn't like that. You've got to fight and fight and fight and keep on going. If Boris asked you to become his new political advisor, (laughs) would you do it? There's no chance of it. It simply isn't going to happen. And Matt on email asks, Nigel, would you date a Remainer? Yes, I would. It wouldn't bother me. Respect for other people having different points of view. That's what civilised democracy is. That's the debate we try and have here on this show and on GB News. All the polling says, actually, it's the other way around. It's the Remainers and others that can't stand us and wouldn't want to see us. Well, i tell you what, if they don't want to have a beer with us, that's their loss, not ours.